When you come to that, please stand with us. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Where I count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me! You bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for you. I count like my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be an offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Father in heaven, we pray that you would accept this reading, that you would find favor with it and with the speakers this day, and that their hearts be joined in one. In the name of Christ, amen. Brendan, would you lead us off with opening prayer?
Amen. We got to do a switcheroo. Three seven eight in your red Trinity this morning. Three hundred and seventy eight.
Anyone have any food at him this morning? Elizabeth, you asked before service. No one's raised their hand. Brianna. He's still not here. Brown? If we can find it, why? Why this one? It was stuck in your head. It's a good song. It was stuck in your head. Six, eight, nine, Trudy. That's the better one. I found it the brown, but we'll do six, eight, nine. <coughs> six, eight, nine in the red.
And our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. That'll be page 1662 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Jesus is um, in his public ministry, and the Jewish leaders are noticing him. And this leads to some run-ins, some discussion. So we take this up in chapter 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge... My decisions are right, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. I said the Lord would bless his word. We take your red hymnal once again and turn to number 493-493.
Our scripture text is John 8, verses 12 and following. Last Lord's Day, we considered three of the I Am statements that Christ makes in the gospel. I am the gate, or I am the door for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. It's talking about entrance into the sheep pen. It's talking about being saved, eternal life, heaven. Christ's the only way in. And if someone tries to enter some other way, they are viewed, says John, as thieves and robbers, only to be caught and condemned. I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Speaking of his life, to protect the sheep, yes, but more importantly, to deliver the sheep from their enemies, thieves, murderers, wolves, he mentions. Those things in our spiritual lives which destroy people, the sinful nature and its deeds, the godless, worldly philosophy of our age, and Satan, of course, the accuser of the brethren. And then the text that we dwelled on for the sermon was I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live 
even though he dies, said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. We learn that resurrection is not simply a future event. It is now in Christ. He is the resurrection. It's always in Christ. And those who commit themselves to him live now the promised life to come in our changed life. Well, today we come to two additional statements that Jesus made about himself. And as with the others, these are very, very interesting. As we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Our Father, we're dealing with um, things your Son explained to his disciples and the people of his day. And he's using symbolism. And it is our desire that the Holy Spirit reveal to us what he is really meaning, what he's talking about. And we know the world misses this, but we don't want to miss it. We want to have a right understanding of the truth of the scripture. And we ask for your enablement. We ask for your blessing. For those that were not here today, some are out ill. We pray for your healing power and strength. And it says in the scripture, it's the Lord that heals the body. And Father, we believe that to be the, the case. We have heard so many stories of surgeries that went well and then the patient still died because the healing process was enhammered in certain ways. We ask, Lord, that you will bless us with the truth of your word today. May you be the great physician and work in our heart. Cut away our sin. Grant us your grace. For the glory of your Son. Amen. Our text, John 6, verse 35, says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is speaking here. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, the best way to study the Bible is in an orderly methodical way because God made our minds to think logically. God himself is not a God of confusion and chaos. He himself is a God of order. So order should be a part of how we think and how we live. Anything else shows lack of self-control and discipline. If you live your life cluttered, if you're always doing things at the last minute, if your life is in shambles at home and at work, even at church, then you need to work on routine and you need to strive to develop For Jesus' claim, I am the bread of life, was one of the most stupendous miracles he ever performed. It, I'm referring to the feeding 
of the 5,000 people, which is found in the first part of John chapter 6. So that is the context of what he is saying here. Jesus was in Galilee, the place of his boyhood. His fame had preceded him. Everyone came out to hear him as he taught along the shores of the sea. His miracles also acted as a magnet, drawing the curiosity seekers who hoped to witness just one more miracle if they could. What actually occurred was a miracle so subtle, so encompassing, so non-spectacular in nature, that everyone was a participant in it without knowing it until it had occurred and it was all over. Verse 6 tells us that it was Jesus' intent to feed this entire crowd that came out to hear him. A multitude so large that Philip, one of his disciples, said, and I'm quoting here, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. John 6, verse 8. That's a lot of people. You better believe it. That being true, yet five small barley loaves of bread and two fish from a little boy in the hands of God fed 5,000 men And verse 10 says, plus women and children. But probably fair to say there was at least another 5,000 there. I mean, you had the women. If the men were married, they had a wife. But if you have children, then you've got mothers. So this is a lot of people. And we are told that when it was all through, 12 baskets full of leftovers were found at the end. Verse 13. And it was only after the miracle had come and gone that the people realized what had happened. Verse 14. The people wanted to make Jesus king by force. Verse 15. So he withdrew from the crowd. Now, they got an ulterior motive why they want him as king. It isn't because they love him and love his teaching on eternal life. That night, Jesus' disciples boated across the Sea of Capernaum. Jesus joined them on the water, verse 19. And the next day, when the people could not find Jesus or his disciples... They boarded boats, too, (laughs) and came in search of Jesus. It would be nice if we could put the best construct on the people's actions here. If we could say that they loved Jesus so much and his teaching that they just had to find him and be with him and learn more about him. But the Bible will not permit such a kind view. 
Why? Jesus says, verse 26, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. What's a sign? You ever think about that? At the very least, it's an indicator pointing to something or giving information about something which is designed to enlighten the onlooker. That's what a sign is. If you're traveling down a road and you spot a triangular-shaped yellow sign in the distance, you know that that sign will have some black lines drawn on it to indicate what's just ahead in the road. It may show a sharp right-hand turn ahead, or it might indicate two lanes narrowing down to one, or it might signify a barrier to one side or the other of the lane in which you're traveling. Signs signify. That's why they're there. Signs point to something beyond themselves. Signs have messages that exceed the simple Black lines on a yellow background. So Jesus is telling these people that they were seeking him not because they saw from uh, they saw from the miraculous sign of the feeding of the five thousand something wonderful and awesome about him. No, 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 but because they wanted another free lunch. Jesus had performed the miracle not for its own sake, but for its teaching value. For what it said about who he was and why he had come. The people would not have died had they missed a meal, would they? The miracle transcends the satiation of hunger. It signified something. It was a sign pointing to something far greater than the supply of the people's physical needs. The people, however, ate their fill and they missed the one the bread and loaves signify. And so Jesus instructed them his words. Here they are. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Verse 27. And then two verses later, verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Did the people get this meaning? 
do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, they didn't get that meaning at all. In another display of crassness, and without the least bit of subtlety, they say, verse 30, uh, What miraculous sign, then, will you give us that um, we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Um, our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Hint, hint. We sure could use some more of that free bread that we had the other day. Maybe if we, maybe if we had another miracle meal, we could believe in you. Moses fed Israel for 40 years in the desert. You fed us only once. It's here that Jesus makes this remarkable claim of his identity. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now we read that, and it's obvious that Jesus is not talking here about physical bread and wine. In fact, he had never been talking about physical food. The miracle was a sign to point to something else. And that something else was a someone, namely himself. As the true bread from heaven, given to the world by God the Father. Verse 32. Yet the people missed the message of the sign. Jesus said, verse 36, As I told you, You have seen me, and still you do not believe. So seeing, they don't see, and hearing, they don't hear. They see only what they want to see. They hear only what they want to hear. And sadly, brethren, this is the commentary on our own age. As well. There are people the world over who are attracted to the miraculous, who care nothing about the significance of the miracle. Watch any of the TV preachers, well, most of them, 95% of them. It's all about orchestrated miracles. And the people going crazy, coming up on stage, acting like fools, 
falling down as though dead, going through all kinds of shenanigans. Now I am one, I am one who believes in the miracle working God. But I also believe that the golden ages of godly miracles has long since passed from the scene. But here is the prophecy that counterfeit miracles will be done in the end age. In the name of God. By emissaries of Satan whose program is designed to deceive. We're living in that time. So we're to be on guard but not gullible. Okay, let's suppose, for argument's sake, that a weeping icon in a cathedral setting is really a miracle from God or that someone who visits the waters of Lourdes in France will be healed by God of their illness. If these things were genuinely of God and not of Satan, then the miracles would have to signify something about Christ. For every miracle Christ performed in his lifetime, from the healing of the lame to the restoration of sight to the blind, taught the greater truths that Christ is the Savior who can help lame sinners stand on their own two feet and blind sinners can have their sight restored from the loss they have with the blackness and superstition that shuttered their eyes. So, the weeping icon would have to say something about God weeping for a world lost in sin as Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Or of God weeping over the effects of sin, which is death, as Jesus wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. And the healing of Lords would have to say something about the healing of soul, which comes to those who are weary and heavily laden by their rebellion to God, or the graciousness of Christ to those deceased and dying in their sin, or the promise of forgiveness to all who are brought low by the load of sin. Something, something beyond the miraculous incident itself would have to be behind them, and that something would be a someone to which every true miracle in the Bible points. Signs point. Signs signify. Folks, Israel of old ate the manna in the wilderness and they missed God as their provider. The crowd at Capernaum ate the barley loaves and the fish and they missed the bread of God who comes down from heaven 
and gives life to the world. Verse 33. And the miracle seekers of our day in both the Protestant and Catholic traditions seek miracles for their own sake and they miss Jesus Christ and care little that they have not found him. How utterly wretched this is. To fill the belly and miss God. To be content with fine food and delicate drink and to think that so long as you are well fed and quenched in thirst, all is well with you. Jesus taught in Matthew 4, Verse 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yet, it is sad how many there are who are working for the food that spoils, says Jesus. Matthew 4, verse 27. In Jesus' own Example to his disciples. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. John 4, verse 32. And the people of our day know nothing about it either. Maybe you're one of them, I don't know. You work every day at gainful employment to feed yourself and your family, to keep a roof over your head, clothes on your back, and it's good and right that you do that. The scripture wants you to do that. But if your means were such that you could put your family up in a palace and set a sumptuous feast before them every day of the week, if they never feed on Christ, if they never drink of him, their bodies may be fat but their souls will be lean. And Jesus warned, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Mark 8, verse 36. You think you are doing your family good to provide for their material needs, and you are. But there's the good, and then there's the greater good. The greater good is that they come to know the one who enables you to make wealth, Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. And that they become rich towards God, Luke 12, verse 21. And the only way that will happen is if you teach them by your example and by your practice of making sure that they, along with you, are present when God's word is being taught. We're spinning our wheels, working our full heads off for baubles, for trinkets and junk from the dollar store, while we miss the jewel of heaven.
The more we have of this world's goods, the more we think we're living well. Life for many is defined by the things they own. Their house, their car, their clothes, their furniture, their sports equipment, their recreational vehicles. This is really living to many. And those that haven't arrived at this financial life level, yet are nonetheless pressing forward to get it. That's their goal. Eternal values are lost. The world is all that counts. The physical reigns supreme. The spiritual is counted of no value whatsoever. But our Lord tells us what true living is all about and how we may attain it. Verse 51. The bread of life, the true bread of heaven said, it is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. Notice that. Not Jesus' teaching, not Jesus' life, but his flesh. As one commentator put it, it is characteristic of this gospel that the emphasis in the passage falls not on Christ's death for sin, but on his death for life. My flesh for the life of the world. You have not experienced life until you are alive in Christ. You'll never find life in things. Life is found only in the bread of life. Who has come down from heaven that in him we might have life. And have it more abundantly. John 10 verse 10. So how are you eating these days? What are you eating these days? Are you well fed in body? But starving in your soul? Feed on Christ. And your hunger and your thirst will end. In John 8, he puts it this way, verse 12. Jesus speaking. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's an interesting statement. The light of life. Throughout these I am statements in John, it's evident that the Lord has been following very closely the history of Israel in which Jehovah, Yahweh, I am, was very prominent. Particularly in that great redemptive work of the Exodus from Egypt. When they came out about a million strong. In John 3, Jesus talks of himself as the true brazen serpent which Moses lifted up in the wilderness, giving this deeper thought that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. John 3, verse 15. 
In chapter 6, as we have just studied, Jesus portrays himself as the true bread from heaven. Better than manna. Because when ingesting him, men find food that endures to eternal life. John 5, verse 27. No food that I know of, no physical food, results in that. In John 7, the Lord speaks of himself as the streams of living water. An allusion to the rock in the desert from which water gushed to relieve God's thirsty people. In chapter 10, we saw Jesus as the good shepherd. In Psalm 78, an historic psalm, portrays God, among other things, as the one who brought his people out of Egypt like a flock. He led them like sheep through the desert. John 78, Psalm 78, excuse me, verse 52. All of this is too much harmony to be coincidence. Jesus is deliberately portraying himself in all the ways in which Jehovah was Israel's redeemer in the Old Testament. Two biblical authors actually give this interpretation to two of the events associated with the Exodus. When Paul says of Jesus, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. And then we have John's own statement in chapter 1, verse 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then again we have Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and following, They, that is Israel, all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Wow. All these physical things, all these miraculous things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament, and the New Testament writers are saying, folks, did you know that was Christ? When you were eating the bread, the manna, that fell on the ground and you gathered it, did you know that was Christ feeding you? When you drank from the rock when you were dying of thirst, did you know you were drinking of Christ? He was providing for you. Duh. Sadly, they didn't know it. It went pew. Right over their heads. So now in our text, John 8, verse 12, when Jesus calls himself the light of the world, it is most likely that he is referring to the luminous cloud which led the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings, and in a very real sense, was their compass to the promised land. 
Exodus 40, verse 36 and following. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. And verse 34 tells us what this illumination was. Quote, The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The light emanating from the cloud and the pillar of fire was the Shekinah glory of God himself as he made his abode with his people. And when the cloud moved, the people moved. When it stayed still, they stayed still. Observe now how Jesus speaks of himself when he says, I am the light of the world. What's the relevance of that? He goes on. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He is saying that just as God in the fiery pillar of Old Testament times was the illumination for Israel to find their way through the blackness of the wilderness, So as men follow him, they will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we observe that Jesus is not a light among many to lead men to life. Nor does he simply lead us to the light. No, he is the light that leads to the promised light. My, how men today need this light. In our sin, we live every bit as much in bondage as the Israelites under the taskmasters of Egypt. Jesus put it this way, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Verse 34 of our text. Put yourself to the test. To see if this is so. Try not to sin. I've tried this. Just try it. We'll make it simple. Try it for one hour of the day. Try for one hour not to think an evil or an immoral thought. Try not to speak an unkind or hurting word. Try not to lose your temper. Try not to be covetous or jealous of another man's position or possessions. Try not to complain. Try not to be self-absorbed. 
try it, and try as you may, you will fail before the hour is up. So will I. So will we all. We think we're so good. We think we are in top form. We think we live better than most men, but we do not. We are blind sinners, groping around in the darkness, stumbling over our own feet, never quite sure that the direction we are traveling will lead us to peace of soul and happiness of spirit. We are our own worst enemy. In Isaiah's words, God has commissioned his son, his servant, to be, I'm reading scripture, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But we are like those whom Jesus described to Nicodemus in John 3.19. This is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, will not come to the light for fear, that his deeds will be exposed. Brethren, there's something very sinister about people who prefer darkness over light. Light has this ability to dispel darkness, to chase it away, to run its hiding, or ruin rather, It's hiding or cloaking nature. But there are people who, while outwardly claiming to be in search for the truth, secretly hope that they never find it. They will even make sure that they never get too close to the light so as to be thoroughly and completely exposed. I don't think that such is an honest search or investigation into the truth. To dabble in Christ, here a little, there a little, taste, but never really feast on him. To look at him, but never gaze intently into the light of his wisdom and knowledge and truth. To remain in the shadow of his person, but never to jump with both feet into his glorious light is to play at sincerity and to make a mockery of any real quest. If you do that and you think you're trying to find God, you are deceived. You're not sincerely trying to find the way of salvation. You want God, but you want your sin too. Heaven in the end, but hell and its pleasures right now. So many people are in this category in our country. And I say that such blindness is willful. That is, it is self-inflicted. 
And what is more, if that's you, you are powerless to do anything about it. You cannot correct it. You cannot heal yourself. Add to this the fact that you have an enemy who wishes to keep you in the dark. And your state becomes absolutely and irreversibly hopeless, humanly speaking. Paul put it this way. The God of this age, that is Satan, little g. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He's saying they're blind and they can't change it. We read that and then we say, well, uh, if that's true, then I guess that's it, right? I mean, if Satan has blinded the mind, who among men can take the veil off? Who can remove the blinders? Poor God. He would like to have you come to the light of his truth, but seeing the glory of Christ... It's not possible because the darkness is great and the enemy is strong. His hands are tied. (laughs) You don't want the light. You fight against God with your will and Satan has seen to it that your spiritual eyes are covered at all times by your sin. The light can be around you. It can engulf you day and night, but if you're blind, you will see nothing and nothing will change. Wow. Is that what you think? Is this your anemic conception of the gospel of Christ? Hear now the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, and I'm quoting, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. As Lord. And what can the Lord do for blind people? For people who prefer darkness over light. For people whose sight is veiled by the enemy of their souls. Here's what the Lord can do. And I'm quoting Paul again. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1 verse 3, at creation. Let God, who made the light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 
Poor God? Ha! No. Poor Satan. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Stepping into the light is only the beginning. To come to Christ is just the start of one's understanding of the things of God. We who have been walking in the light of Christ's glory are being transformed by his light. In other words, bad, evil thoughts, they're leaving. Good, godly thoughts, replace them. Loneliness, fear, dread. Flee in companionship, trust, hope. Replace them. True. We are not all that we shall become. But praise God. We are not all that we once were either. If sanctification has been working in your believing life, So my charge is, come then to the light of the world. Come to the light of life. Feed on the bread of heaven, which alone can satisfy your hunger and quench your thirst. Stop doubting. Believe in Christ's word. We have a Savior that does not leave us to just flop around like some fish out of water, ready to die gasping for its last breath. When we have a God that feeds us with the bread of heaven and his atoning blood removes the veil and the sorrow of our sin and grants us eternal life through his own shed blood. Anyone know a God like that among the pagans? No, there's no God like that. No pagan deity dies and pays the price for the sinfulness of its followers. Never happened. Satan's not about to volunteer to die for anybody. He's got his own agenda. And you aren't it other than to take you to hell with him. We have a Savior that steps in the, in the crack and says, I'll do it. I'll pay the price. I just ask that they believe in me, that they believe that I did it, and that I did it for them because I love them. The devil loves nobody. No one but himself. And every deception is to damn you to hell along with him. 
Oh boy, that sounds like love, right? I'm going to hell, and I'm going to take you with me. Let us trust Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. How precious it is to hear your word and to hear of Jesus' great love and sacrifice. How true it is when he says, I am the light of the world. He's come into the world, but it says that men preferred the darkness over the light. That's a sad, sad commentary. Lord, where our hearts are. We're so accustomed to sin, we don't want it to end. We're so much followers of Satan, we're used to him. We don't have to learn anything new. But unless we renounce him in his ways, we will perish with him. He'll be happy, but we'll, we will not. What will make us joyful is the fact that we come to Christ and he atones for all of our sin and says, that's my son, that's my daughter for whom I died. And you can't have them, devil. They are mine. I have taken them out of your kingdom and brought them in mine. May we this day, brethren, rejoice in such a great Savior. Amen. Our closing hymn from Trinity is 476. Will you stand with me, please? We're just going to skip. Oh, it's on now. It's definitely on now. Ooh. All right. Sorry. We're 7 6.
how true it is, Lord, that you are the light of the world. But sadly, it is also true. It says that when you came into the world as the light of the world, you were rejected because men prefer, they prefer the darkness over the light. Lord, may any here today who is in that category, may they understand that they're not free. They're bound to a, a, a leader. That leader is Satan. He's the king of darkness. So they're not free. We pray that they would come to Christ. He's a far, far better manager and leader than Satan. Satan leads to hell and destruction. Christ leads to eternal life, joy, forgiveness, glory, all of it to come through his shed blood and his cross. Bless these truths to our heart. We thank you for today, for our time in God's house with God's people. So good to be here today. In Jesus' name, amen.